This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we look at something new in cinemas and on streaming services and connect it to films from days gone past of the same genre or actor or filmmaker. And hopefully you will discover through our uh, our work, uh, if you want to call it that, our blathering, something new that you might not have seen before. My name is Karsten Knox and I am a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Saltwire Network and the Chronicle Herald. Today, we are looking at music documentaries. There are a bunch of new ones available, and it it just struck us that this is a chance for us to look at the ways that uh, the stories of musicians are being told in documentaries and, um, you know, and discover for us, maybe this time we'll discover some new musicians we don't know very much about and uh, lead you to them. So here it comes, a lot of music right at you. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm here with Karsten Knox in the studio up at CKDU. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been pouring over some new and uh, not-so-new music documentaries because there are a bunch of new ones. And a lot of these take place in the summer. In the summertime, we're thinking about music, going to outdoor shows when we can, where we can under the current circumstances. But uh, but concerts are happening again, and uh, it, it's it's always great to, to watch a film that kind of transports you to another place through the magic of music. I know it sounds cheesy, but there have been a lot of really great movies about musicians and about musical events that uh, that you can return to anytime, even if you just want to go back and watch some of the performance clips or what have you. And, uh, and some of these films are about specific performers and some of them are about events and uh it, it was a really fun batch that we came up with this week i think karsten oh absolutely yeah and uh you know we we talked about uh there's a difference between like a concert movie which is just about performance and a uh, music documentary which might recall a particular show but mostly is maybe about the life of a musician trying to reach an audience and uh, we got a little bit of both this uh, this time yeah and we're going to start off with an event uh, based film uh, which was uh, filmed at and using a footage from the disastrous I think I think it's safe to, to use that word uh, Woodstock 99 revival that happened in upstate New York on an Air Force base outside of Rome in 1999 obviously uh, from uh, one of the original producers of the Woodstock you know peace music and love fair that happened in 1969 uh, there'd been a previous one in 1994 a Woodstock themed event uh, somewhere in the Catskills or wherever that was uh, fairly successful, had a pretty solid lineup and it was fondly remembered. So five years later, time to take another kick at the old nostalgic can with, with a completely different lineup. Uh, uh, and some would say a rather ill chosen lineup of, uh, of acts that, um, you know, generated a certain uh, emotion, fury, ire, uh, savagery even in in the crowd uh, that was not there for, for peace or love necessarily, and uh, in an environment that was not conducive to generating those uh, feelings of goodwill over the course of the weekend. And uh, as, as we uh, would learn quickly after, um, after the event had taken place back then, uh, you know, basically it devolved into riots, fires. Uh, you know, there were numerous uh, reports of sexual assaults occurring on the grounds of the event and, uh, you know, with lax security, poor organization and a 
what seemed like a general disdain for the attendees from the promoters uh, altogether. And it's all captured in Woodstock 99, um, which is uh, which has the great subtitle of, uh, was it not Peace and Love, but Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. And uh, that's, that's a pretty accurate portrayal of what we get uh, as this uh, chronicles the three days and this kind of descent into hell that this rock festival uh, devolved into. Absolutely. And it's a fascinating eye-opener for me. I remember Woodstock 99 as a being kind of a disaster, uh, but I didn't know how bad it was. And this documentary really lays it out. Uh, you know, this combination, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of what was going on at the time. The, the documentary takes care to sort of frame this particular event around what was happening in pop culture at the time, what was happening in music at the time, and uh, the, especially with the new me- the new metal movement, uh, Kid Rock, Korn, Limp Bizkit, these are bands that were there performing and th- and this whole bro-ish dude rock music, um, you know, and, and it, it does also take care to to take the perspective of maybe we can't blame the artists for what happened at this event, but it feels like everyone was complicit, including, you know, obviously the people who were there, there was, uh, and the, uh, and the, I think the organizers are maybe the ones who are the most, even now, like they are interviewed and they seem kind of like, well, they, sh- they sort of shrug their shoulders, not our fault that this happened. And uh, they are the ones I think who are the most guilty and say the most outrageous things. I just wanted to reach into the screen and throttle them at one point or another when they're basically blaming women for uh, being nude and and uh, attracting the attention of men, uh, you know, at this this concert which has been brand it's like branding the legacy of peace and love generation and selling it to the next generation this whole like boomer legacy thing and then criticizing the women uh yeah that just made my blood boil um it is a fascinating documentary and actually all of the voices are interesting even you know people like um the Offspring and Scott Stapp, you know, not exactly a welcome presence, Mr. Stapp. I don't have much time for him or his music, but he does have some insightful things to say uh, and about, you know, how, you know, this cultural moment, how the inclusiveness and the sensitivity of early 90s grunge bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam had soured into this misogynist nastiness and this premillennial tension where this white dude rock predominated. It's so ugly. And this doc really lays it out there. Yeah, it, it's funny, and and of course that attitude continues, you know, twenty years later in terms of rock fest and things. There's like a rock the hub thing happening in Truro, and it's all dude rock bands. I think there might be like one or two female based uh, acts or acts with uh, the female members uh, on one or two of the days of this three day event. But it's it just looks like you know the, the, we've learned nothing in some ways from from what happened uh, back there in 1999. I think there was like what three major female artists uh, amongst this sea of uh, of uh, of bro dude bands I think uh, was it Cheryl Crow and um Alanis Morissette and Jewel and Jewel. Yeah. And yeah. one on each day. So, you know, that seems fair. Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> uh, it, and then they, you know, they choose this, this 
concrete paradise this air, former air force base to hold it because they're like oh well there's fences all the way around so we'll keep the the you know the non-paying people out and then charge them four bucks for a bottle of water you know yeah in 1999 dollars yeah yeah like the the greed and all you could you can understand why after three days of heat and uh that there might be some frustration from some of these concert goers um it is uh yeah it's it is it just my teeth were grinding watching this sometimes and i kept thinking about uh, you know not to to go to reach too far into drawing connections but but the the kind of burning stuff and the the white male uh entitlement um that masculine anger it felt so much of what we've seen this year in january 6 at the insurrection of capitol hill um spurred on by who knows what like privilege boredom frustration with greed and late capitalism or or uh, a demand that that's that's the you know that's our our god i mean it 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 yeah all of this brought this kind of home for me in a way that uh that i i guess i hadn't quite realized um and and i was fascinated by the role that mtv played how they were at the time embracing boy bands and bubblegum pop while also playing the offspring and marilyn manson and that uh, a lot of dudes were resentful that their radio station their their tv music tv had been invaded by this bubblegum pop um yeah, are, are they little sisters? You know. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. Anyway, there, there's a lot here to to unpack, but uh, but I th- I found the whole thing pretty fascinating. It's all it's all on Crave, incidentally, if you want to check it out. Yeah, even the the offspring who try to cool things off and and you know tell crowd people to stop groping female crowd surfers and and you know behave like humans basically. I mean. Uh, you know, they saw which way the wind was blowing during their set, I think. But they also started off their set by, you know, uh, Dexter uh, coming out and basically uh, beheading a series of uh, Backstreet Boys mannequins with a wiffle ball bat. So, you know, I, I, I think that was, you know, I think they were riding that wavelength until it became too ugly even for them at that point. And and uh, I think someone from MTV, I can't remember if it was Kurt Loder or, or someone else, but you know, they quickly realized that the, this crowd did not want them there at all. <laughs> and having like a, you know, a, an MTV mic flag was like wearing a target uh-huh. in a lot of ways. And I think they bailed early. And, um, and I feel like I was watching some of this go down via much music. I don't know if they had someone there or if they were riding on MTV's feed. No, they did have somebody oh, there because I actually recognized some much music people in the video um, or in this, in documentary. Of course, the Tragically Hip were there. So that Gave it the Canadian connection. And Our Lady Peace, who are also playing Rock the Hub in Drew. So um, there, there you go. There's your Woodstock 99 uh, uh, Nova Scotia connection right there. But it's, uh, you know, they, 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 make a, they make a pretty astute connection um, between what was happening at Woodstock 99 and the thankfully no longer around Girls Gone Wild trend, if you want to call it that. Um and uh, just the the uh, just how uncomfortable it must have been to be a woman at this event, uh, you know, it it really is sort of the overriding theme. I mean, the, we heard about the reports, you know, shortly afterwards of uh, of what was happening at Woodstock '99 uh, to to female attendees, and uh, but this this film really does you know go the extra mile to kind of drive that home of what was happening you know not just the violence and the and the the fires and everything but that there was a lot going on that um you know we still need to be mindful of uh at events these days and 
you know, the, right off the bat, someone says this started out as a comedy and devolved into a horror film. And uh, I'd say that's a pretty accurate description. It's, uh, you know, especially when you see like the, the, the overhead shots of the crowds, uh, you know, I mean, obviously they're dealing with a lot of kind of found footage and, and, and news footage and, and that kind of thing, but they make really good use of it in this film. I thought like it really, by the end of this, I think you do get a real good kind of you are there feeling which is not an entirely comfortable feeling that's for sure no indeed indeed um now to uh to remember that this was born from woodstock uh, original woodstock 1969 and uh, uh to go back and and uh and of course you know the original woodstock wasn't perfect either they had lots of problems uh but uh there is another film out right now on Disney Plus right now called Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. And it makes a terrific case that there was an alternative to Woodstock in the late 60s that people have completely forgotten about. And that's the Harlem Cultural Fe- Festival concerts in Mount Morris Park. And they started uh, on Sundays in the summer of 67 and then went on, I guess, on consecutive years 68 and 69 and this documentary which uses footage that hasn't been seen for years assembled and edited put together by Questlove uh, is a remarkable look at what this what happened in Harlem on these at these shows it offers footage of the crowd and the musician a cross-section of the best African-American R&B and soul musicians of the day including Stevie Wonder the Staples Singers Mahalia Jackson B.B. King the Fifth Dimension Glass Knight and the Pips Sly and the Family Stone Herbie Hancock and even Nina Simone um, now because this footage has been unseen for so long uh, he gives Questlove gives the people who were there uh, access to it and then he shoots their reaction videos as they watch it and share their memories of what it was like to be on that stage uh, it's incredible and it offers this alternate history of the sort of you know the 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 whole Woodstock uh, hippie phenomena uh, you know it, it it's like this was going on at the same time and we yet we knew nothing about it and it was this incredible celebration of, of African American culture at the time yeah, it's an amazing uh, kind of resurrection of this event uh, with some remarkable footage. I mean, I think some of this stuff had been leaked to YouTube a while ago. I think the Stan, uh, Stan, the Sly, Sly Stone and Sly and the Family Stone set uh, appeared on YouTube at some point in either in its entirety or a good chunk of it. And that was stunning to see at the time, but to see it put in the proper context and uh, to see what you know, his success meant to the black community and, and, and to see him alongside, you know, other musicians who were really, you know, pushing for change in their music, Nina Simone and the staple singers, and, and even the fifth dimension, you know, who kind of get written off as this kind of lightweight pop soul band, but, uh, you know, they're one of the highlights of the film, you know, they bring on such, uh, you know, such a, a wave of, of, of love and, and goodwill towards the crowd. And, and they put on this great performance, uh, and, and they're, they're kind of a, they've been a revelation for a lot of people who are seeing, uh, seeing this film and kind of experiencing them for the first time. And, uh, it's, you know, it, this is the antidote to Woodstock 99. That's for sure. I mean, obviously not a, a more recent one, but, uh, you know, it, it lets us know that, uh, you know, Woodstock wasn't the be all and end all of rock festivals. Um, that, that there was a lot more going on in, in music at the time that, that really needs to be reconsidered in a lot of ways. I mean, we've had the Nina Simone documentary, which was, which was terrific. And, and in fact, I think footage from this showed up in, in that doc, but, um, but you know this is a, a reminder that uh you know that 
the sixties are, were culturally bigger world than, than we tend to think of, or that we've been fed, um, by boomer nostalgia for the last 50 years. And it's a really valuable document in that way. Yeah, absolutely. It was a real eye opener for me. It was it was a, a joy to watch. And, and and again, it's not just about concert footage, which is wonderful. There's also a lot of context yes. that gets brought into it, either from attendees or people who are in the crowd who are interviewed about their memories of what happened, or just you know historical um, providing some some background on what led up to these these shows and and the mood of the time. And you know, in that regard, this is is as fascinating as Woodstock 99 in terms of like placing us in a time and place so that we can better understand and better appreciate what some of the musicians are singing about and what what's actually happening in the air at the time. But you certainly feel a lot better having watched it. Oh my gosh, yes, you feel so much better. Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, one uh, African-American artist who were particularly uh, groundbreaking, but who I guess weren't at um, this particular show was Ike and Tina. And... Uh, I uh, went and watched, or we went and watched Tina, the uh, the new documentary about Tina Turner on Crave, directed by Daniel Lindsay and J T uh, J Martin, and uh, it's it's it was really great to see it, but it's a, so strange to see a documentary made about a subject after a hit biopic was made on the same subject. Because I feel like I, the first half of the film, which covers the Ike and Tina years and the suffering that Tina Turner like secretly was going through as the partner of this abusive uh, man. Uh, we, we know a lot about that because since what's got, what's love got to do with it, uh, you know, with, with Angela Bassett in the lead role. And she actually makes an appearance here in this, uh, in this film. Uh, so you basically jump back and forth. There's a 2019 interview from her home of Tina Turner. She's, she lives in Zurich now with her husband and uh, they cut that with, intercut that with a tape that of an interview she gave with People magazine back in 1981, which details the abuse she suffered at the hands of Ike Turner, who she was with for 16 years. And there's like this, you jump back and forth. And because her voice has changed quite a bit in the intervening uh, 40 years or so, uh, you can tell which interview is which, but they jump back and forth, which gives you kind of an overview. You know, she's looking back at her life back when it was raw and fresh and also with given a little bit of distance. And uh, that's fascinating. My favorite part of this doc, I think, was the stuff, it was her comeback, how she managed to recreate herself as this phenomenon 80s music and have these huge hits and and basically fill um, stadiums with her fans and play these world tours as this massive solo artist. And in some ways, you know, as they say, uh, the sweetest success is the sweetest revenge. And boy, did she ever, was she ever successful? Oh man, this is one of the best examples of that you can imagine. Again, it's, you know, it's, it's a feel good story. I mean, she's, she's a survivor. Uh, uh, you know, she got to, to write her own ending as it were. And, you know, she, she had about like four different careers. It starts off with these early R&B hits, um, you know, when she makes the move from uh, Anna Mae Bullock from, from rural, I think, Tennessee to, uh, to from Nutbush, of course, uh, which, which later provided the hit Nutbush City Limits, a small southern town. And then, you know, becomes, becomes an early R&B star with, with, with Ike. And then that dynamic gets transformed into this dynamic uh, soul review of the late sixties and early seventies that becomes one of the biggest concert attractions, you know, certainly, certainly in R and B music. And, uh, even though, you know, what was going on behind the scenes is, is was fairly reprehensible. What, what she brought to, to the stage as a performer, um, 
even under those constraints was was pretty remarkable when you consider it all and then and you know and then she frees herself of ike i think she has some early disco hits and then completely as you say reinvents herself uh, as a pop star you know when she's well into middle age at this point and you know, uh, as as a, she becomes a film star and and a pop star, you know, not just an R and B star, but but a, a global, you know, chart topping pop star, uh, and it's, you know, it's hard to imagine now <laughs> that sort of thing happening because uh, the the music scene is so fragmented. But she's uh, she's such a lion. It's it's uh, it's amazing to watch and just to, just to re experience it all. Um, and and to also see like the, that later success, you know how she was trying to put her past behind her, and and how that became her big challenge as well, you know, which is something that maybe we don't know as much about, and that might be sort of the revelation because of course a, a lot of her backstory and what she went through with an abusive husband is is pretty well known. She wrote a book about it essentially, as we learned from the documentary, so she wouldn't have to talk about it ever again. But that didn't work out. That didn't work out, uh, and, and you know, and she still manages to rise above that too. So. Uh, there's there's a lot to like about the progression of this film. It's not like one of those films where the interesting part of their life is the early days, but then you still have the last 20 years to kind of get through to get to the end of the biopic. She's constantly surprising and, and uh, revelatory throughout the, the course of the film about her her career and her talent and her history. And although we did we did discuss a few things that we seem seem to be missing from the doc. Yeah, they um, can't cover everything, but no. there were things I was hoping to see that we didn't we didn't get to. Yeah, well. I, I feel like I first became aware of Tina Turner uh, when she played the Acid Queen in The Who's Tommy. And and that was kind of one of her first kind of breakout solo um, kind of ventures, really, doing that song in the movie, getting that kind of solo attention. But also that that song became kind of a, a bit of a radio hit as well and, uh, and got her a lot of attention as a solo artist. Uh, and also uh, her duet with uh, Brian Adams, <laughs> It's Only Love, which we both thought would would have you know, we, we thought there would have been at least one talking head moment with Brian Adams and, <laughs> and, and maybe there was, and they, they cut it for time. Who's to say, but as Canadians, we felt that would have been worth a mention at least. And you're listening to lends me your ears. And on this episode, we're talking about music documentaries, some new, some a little older. And to start the second segment, we're talking about, we're going to start with Susie Q, directed by Liam Furmager. Furmager? Furmager? He's, I believe, an Australian filmmaker. Uh, Susie Quattro was a big deal in Australia and in the UK, but less so in North America. Uh, of course, I'd heard of Susie Quattro, probably due to her three-season stretch as Leather Tuscadero on Happy Days, a uh, you know, sitcom that I remember watching as a kid, but I don't know that I could name one of her songs. But then, you know, this is one of the things I think that music documentaries can do is really introduce you to artists who maybe not have not received their due. And uh, in this case, I was so impressed with the music. Uh, you know, there's a listening to a lot of songs. There's that major glam thing. There's the thudding drums. Very familiar. Uh, and as Joan Jett called it, the English glitter music. Uh, <laughs> you know, she was a big fan of Susie Quattro. And it's got a great swing. It's really cool to hear some of these songs again. Uh, but the story of the documentary is how kind of how she had this massive success. It's kind of this parallel story, this massive success. The same time she's mostly unable to break 
break into the American market, which, let's face it, in the 70s and 80s, mostly dominated by dudes in the rock world. I mean, aside from Hart, how many women made it in hard rock? I guess eventually Joan Jett, but there aren't aren't a lot of stories. And uh, and at the same time, you know, she uh, she she came. We find out she came from Detroit originally and was in a band with her sisters long before she reached the success in these various markets. And it's about her relationship with her sisters and how she was always hoping for some kind of recognition that you know she she had made it and she wanted their love and approval. But they were there. There was a lot of still. It feels like there's a lot of friction there in that relationship, and that's a fascinating part of this this documentary. Yeah, I I basically knew of her kind of arriving on the scene in the early seventies in England. And I knew she was American, obviously, cause I'd watched happy days, but, but anything that happened prior to Susie Quattro emerging as this, uh, you know, kind of cocky chipper proponent of, of, of leather clad glam in the early seventies, you know, anything that happened prior to that, I was fairly unaware of. I, I just knew that she came to the attention of, of Chin and Chapman, who were this master songwriting production team in the UK who were behind a huge number of hits by a ton of these, these acts that all kind of arrived on the scene almost simultaneously in the wake of, uh, of T-Rex and David Bowie. Uh, you know, they wrote and produced for Sweet Ballroom Blitz is probably their best known, uh, best known hit. I think out of that whole melange of acts, but they also wound up working with Blondie on uh, Parallel Lines, and um, you know, doing the same for Blondie that they did for Sweet and um, and Susie Quattro and so on. And but the whole dynamic of of Susie and her sisters trying to find a sound in Detroit in the late sixties when things were going rapidly from kind of 60s grass rock pop to the the heavy you know proto-punk of the mc5 and the stooges and trying to figure out where they fit in that stuff is really fascinating and and i really appreciated learning about that and and uh you know and and the doc also makes no bones about the fact that she just not could not get traction uh in the u.s even though she was american she was playing you know, American style rock and roll in, in a way. Uh, most of her records feature covers of of rock and roll standards. You know, I remember hearing her very first album, and I think she does a version of All Shook Up that that really kind of turns it inside out in a fun fun way. And and but even that uh, didn't help. And being as you say, being on Happy Days for three seasons, uh, you know, making her a household name, it was the most popular show on television. And even that didn't really translate into into record sales uh, and and hit singles either. So. You know, it's just, just what does it take? Uh, and of course, it's just the it just it's the difference between the music biz in North America and overseas, I guess. But but it still seems um, kind of a kind of a mystery in a way that she didn't have more success in the U.S. Despite the fact so many people tried to give her a boost, people like Alice Cooper, who you know brought brought Susie out on tour with no questions asked, and and yet Australia just fell for her. You know they. It didn't matter if she was a an American transplanted to England coming to Australia. You know, it didn't seem to matter to them. They just uh, they just put her on the charts with every single. And uh, you know, I, I, I guess it's good that maybe that they don't get too much into the nuts and bolts of the music biz and and focus more on Susie and her ups and downs. But um, but it it would be kind of nice to know a little bit more about why that was the way it was but she she seems to take it all in stride uh you know she's 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 also a survivor and um 
you know, has has a fairly good ph personal philosophy about the whims of the music biz and, and has come out the other side in one piece. I, I guess uh, if I had a complaint about the film, it is fairly formulaic in terms of the way it tells the story. It, it, it feels like it's following a template set out by other uh, music docs we've seen in the past. But uh, at the same time, she's such a charming personality and is, you know, is such a positive person about all the things she's gone through uh it's it's hard not to enjoy the experience of of following her ups and downs yeah for sure and i, I mean she's got this incredible like three or four chapter career where she rock star tv star and then musical theater person like on the the british the london west end it, her yeah it's, it's striking how many different ways she was successful in reinventing herself and uh and is still recording music today and is still you know uh yeah a great personality really interesting to listen to uh suzy q is on canopy now so uh so if you want to seek her out i think uh, i'd recommend it as you say i agree with you though on the formulaic aspect of the doc, but but uh, a lot to enjoy there in her life and work. Um, let's move on to the Sparks Brothers, which is directed by Edgar Wright, feature filmmaker. Of course, we all know his work from you know A Shaun of the Dead to um, uh, geez, what else? B uh, Baby Hot Driver, Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. Yeah, yeah. He's got a Scott new film. Pilgrim he's, saves he's, the world. He's got a new feature coming soon. Uh, Last night in Soho, which I can't wait to see. It's going to be at uh, TIFF uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, so Sparks Brothers is the other movie he made during the pandemic, and I guess he's been working on it for a while. And it's about Sparks, which is a a, a band that um, I was shocked because how it how is it that I've never really heard any of their stuff? I, <laughs> well, that's I why paid he made this music. movie, yeah, basically. yeah. And I watched it and thinking to myself, is this a mockumentary? Are these guys for real? I mean, they're supposedly brothers. One guy has a little Hitler mustache. They Charlie they, Chaplin mustache. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Um, and you know they're. They they look entirely like a British band, but they're not even from the UK. They're from California. And it just and it makes anyway, their 1966 single was called Computer Girl. I mean, it's almost too obvious and too indebted to this is Spinal Tap to to be like satire. But at the same time, I'm like, this just feels like that kind of a story. Uh, you know, uh, Russell, one of the brothers says, we predate craft work when it comes to computer songs. Uh, I mean, it's just it's so funny that I almost had a hard time believing it was real. Uh, anyway, I, but it's it's a it's a delight, and clearly Edgar Wright is a is a aficionado. He's in in inductee to the Sparks Army because he this is a long and an in depth and absolutely comprehensive look at this band. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Spinal Tap because uh, you know as they say in Spinal Tap when they're talking about one of the album covers, I guess uh, probably Smell the Glove. There's a fine line between clever and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and thank uh -huh. sparks come down on the clever side of that fine line <laughs> yes you know if if and maybe that was the problem with finding a, a a sort of mainstream audience they were really freaking clever and maybe too clever for their own good and uh as we see over and over and over again over the course of this documentary um but you know they're still going strong they keep you know reinventing themselves it it it, it doesn't dwell so much on those periods where you know, they just, I mean, they don't sell a ton of records yet. They obviously record executives like them because they keep getting signed to, to label after label over the course of the year. I think at this point, they must have been on every label that exists, uh, every major label at this point. But uh, but they, they, they keep coming back for more and they keep putting out 
really fun, really enjoyable, and, and really identifiably sparks records, whatever that uh, special formula is. And and I think, uh, you know, we talked about how Suzy Q is kind of formulaic. I mean, and, and this tells, you know, this is a similar kind of rise to some sort of cult success anyway, and then the kind of continued ups and downs. But it, it doesn't feel formulaic because Edgar Wright just – throws every cinematic trick in his bag at this film to, to keep it uh, moving and engaging and, and lively, you know, between uh, there's lots of archival footage, but there's also newly generated animation and, and, and lots of um, clever bits of, of comedy that the, the brothers uh, are playing right along with. Uh, and it, it, there's a, a really great sense of collaboration between the male brothers and, uh, and Edgar Wright through the course of this film that makes it thoroughly enjoyable now i'm a sparks fan i i discovered them i probably first saw them in the movie roller coaster uh the last of the or one of the last 70s disaster films where uh the band is featured performing at an amusement park when another uh roller coaster disaster happens um which is basically the theme of the film that's basically all you need to know about that particular movie uh but uh and, and so I would have seen them in that because I saw that film at a pretty early age. Uh, but I, I really didn't get into their music until I started reading Cream magazine. And they were always going to bat for Sparks in one way or another. And I just stumbled upon four of their albums on sale at a used record store in St. John and uh, scooped them all up and took them home and just fell in love with those records right away. I mean, they basically invented New Wave um, you know, several years before that sound occurred, you know, between the catchy keyboards and the, the off kilter song lyrics and the, the punchy melodies, they basically created new wave before anybody knew what it was. And maybe even before punk evolved into new wave, uh, the sparks were basically making that music and, uh, you know, you, you owe it to yourself to, to discover their music. It's sometimes it's a bit like just a lot of sugar all at once because they're, they're so hyper melodic and so catchy and, and so, you know, every song is about some new subject. They rarely repeat themselves. And it, it, it can be a lot to take in all at once, especially when, the, as, it, as the movie points out, they have like 25 albums or... Yeah, 25, they say. And, yeah. and uh, we get to focus on every one <laughs> at, at one point or another, which might be to the film's detriment in that it does kind of get a little bogged down in, in the later years. But, uh, but uh, you know, Edgar Wright is a fan. He wants the film to be definitive, and by golly, that's what he delivers. And you know, it's it's up to you to decide if you want to stay through the whole thing or not. But um, but I recommend you do because this is a fascinating story. And the Male brothers are so delightful as they tell their story. They they seem to have a really good relationship. They seem to be the flip side of other brothers, like like the Davies brothers and the Kinks or, or the Everly brothers. You know, you hear about brother acts that just fight nonstop, and they seem to be the the uh, the exception that proves the rule, I guess, and uh, their relationship that they they've developed, you know, as coworkers as well as brothers, is is one of the real delights of the film. Yeah, I really like the film, and it kind of reminded me, you know, just by being so comprehensive, it reminded me a bit of uh, Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage, which is a lovely mm. documentary about that band and about their working relationship over the years, and and it takes the time to go through stage by stage, album by album, and you really get a an overall feeling for a. Uh, 
for what uh, what Rush was able to accomplish. And in a weird way, also like the world's biggest cult band. Um, I think uh, Edgar Wright would like more success for the Sparks. And I, you know, with this documentary, they might achieve a broader appeal. I mean, especially now that they are doing a, a musical with Leos Carax, the the French uh, filmmaker, Annette, which has just arrived, I think, on streaming. Which yeah, I, it's on Amazon. I've now. yet to see it, but I'm looking forward to that to see what that's all about. Um, so let's move on to the last film on this segment, and I gotta be upfront, full disclosure from the start. Uh, this film is called Dust Radio, a film about Chris Whitley. I contributed personally to the Kickstarter campaign to get this film made. A longtime fan of the uh, blues guitar player Chris Whitley, uh, Texas-born, lived in Europe for many years, in the early 90s, managed to land a Sony Columbia record deal with the help of Daniel Lanois and record his debut album, Living with the Law, down in New Orleans. Uh, released it to much success, uh, much hype. Uh, he was Rolling Stone, uh, called it the best debut album of the year. And he started to play talk shows. He got an opening uh, slot with uh, Tom Petty on a tour. His follow-up, Five, four or five years later was less well regarded, uh, Din of Ecstasy. And then his third record on Sony Columbia, Terra Incognita, did nothing in, uh, in, in stores. So uh, they dropped him. And then he went on to record a new album every year until his death in 2005. And he's a remarkable, restless artist. I saw him on stage many times. Incredibly talented guitar, talented guitar player and singer-songwriter. Uh, troubled, clearly, in some respects. And this documentary gets into that, the nuts and bolts of it. It's available on YouTube. Now, the version that is here on YouTube is a version uh, that uh, it has been re-edited and not yet released newer cut has um is is out there it, it sort of got taken by his family and a new editor came in to remove some of the there the sort of like there's early material and there's there's later material there's a there's some interview footage of him in an apartment in New York City where he's clearly uh not doing well and a lot of that has been taken out of the newer cut but I think I personally as someone who contributed to it I feel like the version that's on YouTube now is in some places a difficult watch, but it's, um, I think it's honest about a lot of the struggles of the artist. And uh, I think uh, anyone who is interested in music and roots music and Americana, I think will find something to enjoy about his work. And he was remarkably talented. And uh, yeah, I really, I really love the doc. I think what the doc misses is, uh, is that, it is that story of the artist that was not fully appreciated in his lifetime and had his maybe his demons, his demons conquered him in some respects. But he was so prolific and so talented that I think there is another story to be told that maybe it doesn't tell about how he released those beautiful, wonderful records after he went independent away from the controlling aspects of the big music industry. Annually, he he created all this work, which uh, mm -hmm. is still there to be discovered. Yeah, I, I also feel like the downward slide uh, of his career and life is kind of uh, overshadows the successes that he did have and and the music that he did make. And um, but but I I, I think it's a it's certainly a compelling portrait, which I think is what they set out to make, I and mean, that was their their primary goal uh, to make this film. But I I, I do feel like. You know, there were maybe there were some ups, that could have, which I guess is what the family wanted as well. Um, but uh, I think they smoothed out some of the rough edges that are, are still pretty crucial to telling his story. Uh, 
I think I became aware, I, I certainly became aware of him when the debut came out, um, you know, because of that big company push, as they say, in the film. And, uh, you know, certainly that stretched to all uh, corners of the industry. Uh, but, uh, you know, didn't really know about just like the rough childhood that he had. And, you know, he's going to bars at the age of 11 and, uh, you know, kind of raised himself in a way from the sounds of it, you know, just kind of brought himself up by his own bootstraps. And, and what I, what I do like about this film is that it really does portray an artist who is completely consumed by the music. And that's all that mattered. It wasn't about, you know, doing the promo gigs or, you know, building an audience or cross synergistic platforms or you know, the kind of music biz speak. I mean, he, he just shut it all out. He just wanted to take his influences, the, the, the blues and the country and the, the folk and fuse it into something that was purely his, something he could call his own and, uh, and, and make it impossible for people to label him. And, and, uh, I, I think, I think that aspect of his character really does shine through even in this, uh, sort of rougher cut as it were that, uh, you can see on YouTube. Yeah, no, and and uh, it's it, you can understand why a record company would have such a hard time selling that because his his first, second, and third records sound completely different from one another, and that he would continue to challenge himself and his audience with his production values, with playing. You know, he'd do a record that was live off the floor, recorded in two days, and then he'd do a much more elaborate production work for something like Rocket House. Uh, yeah, it's. Um, it is lovely to see him, you know, in his peak times and peak performance time because his live shows were incredible. Um, yeah, it's um, it's really it is really lovely to see it. And uh, you know, it, funny we're talking about a legacy of certain artists. This I think I think this film tells one kind of legacy. But uh, Chris Whitley also had a daughter who uh, is her name is Trixie Whitley. She's a New York or Brooklyn, I guess, uh, officially a, a musician and is making remarkable music herself now. Um, she's sort of becoming a, a mix of electronic and jazz and rock. She's again someone who refuses to be. I think pigeonholed and I think that's what's going on with her career and that's probably part of the talent of her father being transferred to the next generation. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food, it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Your Ears as we wind up our look at new and seek outable, if that's a word, uh, sort of uh, recent past uh, music documentaries. Uh, and uh, I, this one, uh, we're, we're going back to music uh, of the, uh, I guess, 80s, 70s, 80s, if you will. Uh, and uh, certainly acts that were around uh, during um, my adolescence, if you were. Uh, and uh, we're going to start off with The Future is Unwritten. It's a documentary from 2006, directed by Julian Temple, about the life of Joe Strummer, founder of The Clash, and uh, later a solo artist and a performer, recorder, um, 
touring artist with uh, his solo band, the Mescaleros, and prior to his his untimely death. And uh, you know, Joe Strummer is kind of a key figure in my early development. I have to say, I, I do uh, remember hearing the Clash for the very first time. A friend of mine's uh, brother came home with a copy of uh, the second Clash album. Uh, give him enough rope, put it on the the turntable, you know, fresh fresh out of the store and uh, I was floored, I, you know, and it's not necessarily a record that's well um, regarded compared to some of their other work uh, these days, but that record, uh, you know, hearing Tommy Gunn and Guns on the Roof and, you know, it was the Janie's and the Drug Squad. I mean, that, that record, you know, really, really did hit me like a hammer and I just had to immediately get whatever uh, records by them I could get. And of course, Joe Strummer and Mick Jones were kind of the twin voices of that band. But, uh, but, Joe's sort of subsequent career as as a broadcaster and as a, a just an icon of of uh, music with a conscience and music with integrity. I mean, you know, it certainly makes him worthy of his his own documentary, especially directed by Temple, who uh, of course was key in in the cinematic portrayal of the punk universe as he directed the Sex Pistols movie, uh, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, and later made a Sex Pistols documentary called The Filth and the Fury, along with other fine documentaries and and um, dramatic and musical films as well. But um, but but uh, but here I find he really wants to get to the soul of Joe Strummer, who is not around to tell his story, but left behind a lot of uh, broadcast tapes and interview recordings and so on to kind of uh, get at where this guy who was the son of a diplomat. I mean, this guy became one of the, the bastions of punk rock, and yet he was the son of a diplomat kind of spreading colonialism in the British Empire around the globe. He was born in Ankara and then grew up in places like you know, like South America and India and so on, and went to boarding school and, you know, eventually felt the need to break free from those uh, constrictions of, of the kind of middle-class um, civil service kind of existence. And, uh, you know, before long, he's going to art school, busking with the ukulele in the, the tube and then squatting in a in a in an abandoned flat in uh, West London. So uh, uh, certainly all perfect for establishing your punk rock credibility. And, and we see that, that rise uh, from, you know, dis- his discovery of music as a kid to uh, the clashes kind of presentation of political rock on a, on a mainstream stage as they rise up to um, uh, global fame with hits like rock the Casbah, should I stay or should I go, which was inconceivable at a punk band from the UK and the you know the the late seventies would be able to build uh, build that sort of audience and that sort of acclaim, and just when they reach their peak, the band just comes apart, and he kind of follows his own path. He and uh, and does so in, in a very uh, believable and and uh, endearing kind of way, uh, and and then just suddenly is taken from us way too soon. And it, it was a journey I enjoyed, and and Temple, uh, true to his previous work, does it in kind of a rough hewn rough cut kind of way it's uh you know all the interviews with the the people who worked with joe or knew joe or loved his music they're all filmed around blazing fires in the night kind of thing and that was a this this thing that that joe strummer i guess would present on his radio show that they're all listening around this radio campfire as it were hearing these songs um that he was playing, you know, as people were hearing them for the first time. And, and somehow that aesthetic works in the context of this documentary. And I thought it was a great way to get into his character and into his career. 
Yeah, I uh, I I always respected the Clash. I've got a couple of their records, certainly for what they were able to achieve. I was more of a hard rock guy than a punk person as a as a kid. Um, I don't have quite the rosy tinted view of this documentary or of Joe that you do. Um, I thought the doc started quite poorly. The I felt like I felt like Temple was really reaching for material to sort of uh, illustrate his early life with a lot of a like lot of stock footage, stock footage <laughs> which didn't seem to make much sense to me. I didn't like, I thought the sound mix was annoying. At sometimes it was really quiet with some of the talking heads sitting around the campfires, which at first I was like, why is he doing this? Of course, he explains it later, but at the time, the beginning, I was just like, this is just a really distracting way to get people to talk. Um, and, and he then, doesn't identify them either, which I know is, is yeah, is, a pet peeve so of mine. Both of us. So. Like I, I like to be able to know who's talking and then, you know, he doesn't identify a lot of the talking heads of course yeah. some of them i recognize oh, bono yeah yeah but then <laughs> but anyway all of which though doesn't when the clash actually formed then there's plenty of footage so then it becomes really interesting what i did like especially about the film is that uh joe is this is a warts and all doc like he is some of his friends are like quick to say you know he abandoned us when he decided to become this punk leader of this punk band uh rock band he he left behind his hippie roots and uh and he basically like he basically walked away from a whole group of friends he had been hanging out with and uh, wouldn't talk to them and had this whole persona that he took on and uh, and they they talk about how much that hurt them and how what kind of what of a jerk that he was and uh, so we see all his we see his his achievement his charisma and how he uh, you know and all the great things that he was able to do we also see that he was a very flawed individual and I, I like that about about this film um, and I liked how the inside the look at the clash how the band basically fell into all the cliched rock problems from the drugs the egos the ambition and the backstabbing people being kicked out of the band um, you know flaky manager <laughs> yeah all of that was part of their story and I really love that they found the one clip of David Lee Roth saying that, hey, maybe you guys should take life a little less seriously, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, you know, the clash changed the world. I think it's arguable that Van Halen did. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but then people like Johnny Depp and John Cusack and Matt Dillon show up in front of those fires and you start to wonder why these guys need to be heard from. Um, I did enjoy that Scorsese credits the clash for the spirit of Raging Bull. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and I liked seeing Jeannie Becker show up in a couple of scenes as an interview or asking the band a few tough questions, um, you know, from the uh, Canadian side of things. Uh, yeah, I really, by the end of the film, I was very much invested. And uh, it took me a while to get there, though. I felt like it was that rough rough and ready style was, was a bit much. And I'll say this one other thing. I, I, you know, I've known The Clash for a while. I'm 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 on board, but I hadn't really heard a lot of Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros, and the songs that they play are awesome. I have to get into listening oh, to some of those. They're great stuff. records because they, you know, he he was fully determined to maintain that punk spirit, but by then he he discovered so many different types of music in his travels. That, yeah, I mean, the Clash were a multicultural band to begin with. I mean, they were doing dub reggae on their very first album and working with Lee Scratch Perry. Um, you know, they, and then by the time of London Calling, and then Sandinista is just, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, this sort of global world beat marketplace in a three record set kind of thing. In fact, I, I love the record so much that it inspired me to uh, represent Nicaragua in my uh, high school's uh, 
mock you in. That's so, amazing. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I sometimes forget how much I love this band um, and uh, how disappointed I was when they became successful. And uh, the great thing with the film is it does show how that success was a real paradox for, for Joe and how, uh, you know, that thing that they wanted is also the thing that kind of tears apart the band you know he and he's he's a complete control freak as far as the band goes but you know mick jones is just as uh creatively invested in the band as um as strummer is and of course that that kind of pressure can only last for so long in 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 one band and uh you know and, and mick i have to go back and re-listen to the the big audio dynamite records that mick jones made uh to, because I, you know, I I remember liking them at the time, but I don't know how well they've aged. Whereas the stuff that Joe did, you know, because it has that humanistic and uh, international outlook, uh, I feel probably hold up a lot better than um, you know Mick Jones trying to adapt a kind of an urban sound, if you will. Um, and uh, you know, but this 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 film really does inspire you to seek out more of the music he made after the Clash. You know that that and confirm that he was still a vital source. It's actually a really good um, uh, soundtrack for this movie that would probably do just as well for for giving you that kind of impression of his overall career. Well, I definitely want to do that. And yes, absolutely. I'd be into, I remember a couple some of the hits from Big Audio Dynamite. Um, but all of this, all the post-Clash stuff, I definitely want to check out. Uh, now, before we wrap up our... Um, our look at uh, music documentaries today. I think we got one last one here. <laughs> the Anti-Clash. And the Anti-Clash, Soul Boys of the Western World, available now on YouTube. And it's about a band that I don't really have a lot of feeling for one way or the other. But it's a <laughs> terrific documentary, which made me actually kind of respect what they were able to accomplish. Um, and it's Spandau Ballet. Now, uh you know, it's about, and it's one of those docs that's not only about the band, but about the whole scene, because there was so much footage, and, and it was the birth of the video age in the early 80s, and this band was born out of the Blitz, a Soho club, and uh, and they they kind of had an ensemble, an entourage of people from the Blitz, uh, designers, clothing designers, graphic designers, video makers, and they would all get together and make arty music videos and they would spandau ballet would be the band and uh that's kind of fascinating you know at the time i thought they were completely ridiculous back in the, as, a, as a teenager but and, and i i'm still not a huge fan of the music but it's it's really interesting to see again like what was happening in london in the early 80s and how it gave birth to this band that was interested in style interested in elegance and interested in in like sophisticated pop music uh, and how of course they also completely fell apart with uh, with lawsuits and all the rest of it. It really, uh, it didn't end well for them. Of course, you know, I think I think at the end of the day, they they sort of let bygones be bygones and uh, and went back out on tour. But uh, yeah, Wham, Duran Duran, Culture Club, and Spandau Ballet, it's that whole scene. And it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, and the film does uh, point out how they were overshadowed by Duran Duran, who it, it seems like basically kind of stole their look and their sound and then we're able to have that kind of wider success you know outside of england that maybe spandau ballet couldn't uh, couldn't quite achieve although that you know they had that you know they had one massive international hit with true and to a lesser extent uh, there's my earworm for the day and uh, and, and gold to a lesser extent was a hit is true <laughs> thank you for that <laughs> um but but you know the they're being, I mean, Spandau Ballet and Visage were kind of like the two bands that originated 
the sound of the new romantic movement. I mean, even the village people made a new romantic record, <laughs> which, and, which tells you how like blazing hot the scene was for about five minutes. And then like within a year or two was not being considered at all as important or influential. And yet Duran Duran somehow, you know, arose out of the ashes and took what that scene created and then found a place in the hearts of teenage girls everywhere. So, um, and so it's 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 great how the film kind of points that out and points out this very brief kind of flash in the pan scene, if you will, did give rise to uh, to broader and wider things, and and you know, and also looks at how the Kemp brothers, you know, had maybe even more success uh, as actors, you know, appearing in the craze. Uh, yeah, we've mo- talked movie. about that about that film, yeah. and, and then uh, you know, and then having you know going on to act individually, not necessarily as as brothers, but uh, you know, on TV and in films and. And uh, you know, get past their their '80s pop roots, if you will. So it it, it is a fascinating look at a career that arose out of puffy shirts and <laughs> floppy hair, and, <laughs> and and how you know, and how it affected different members of the band. How some were able to find success elsewhere, and others weren't really able to shake the Spandau Ballet legacy, if you will. Um, and uh, I, I love that it was able to kind of balance all that stuff out. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really worth seeing. It's it's called, again, Soul Boys of the Western World. It's on YouTube. And, and I'm going to reiterate that it's just something that's great about these music documentaries. It, they will change your mind or they will give you a deeper insight into bands, even bands that you're not that interested in. And I, I, I feel like I really understand Spandau Ballet on a much deeper level now, whether or not, you know, I needed to. Uh, you know, it really, <laughs> I guess that's an arguable thing to say, but I, I really enjoyed it. And so, uh, yeah, I'd recommend anyone who's interested in music to seek it out. Well, it is fascinating. Like I forgot they were at Live Aid and, <laughs> and there they are. And there they yeah. are at Live Aid, you know, waiting for uh, status quo to finish doing their sound check. And they're making fun of status quo. Uh, and singing along to them, though. yeah, because they're, they're one of those bands that's just always been there, and and I uh, just find it funny that Status Quo was the band that opened Live Aid because they're just one of those bands that refuses to go away, and then you know Spandau Ballet kind of find themselves eventually in the same position, you know, when they're reuniting, uh, you know, twenty years later for a reunion tour and all that kind of thing, and it's just like what goes around comes around, <laughs> and uh, you know, for for a look at how the music business works. Uh, yeah, you know, on, on kind of a mainstream level, this this is a great way to to experience that. Well, that's it for this edition of Lens Me Your Ears, and I hope you enjoyed this look at all these fine musical documentaries. I hope you enjoyed this walk down musical memory lane cinematically through some of these films, and uh, I hope you can seek some of them out. Thankfully, some of them are available on YouTube and Canopy and places that are are accessible and cheap and free, Uh, and that's always a great thing. Um, My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm Karsten Knox, and I have a Twitter account named after my film blog, Flaw in the Iris, and Lends Me Your Ears is on Twitter as well and on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in again, and as always, thanks to CKDU 88.1 FM for the use of the production studio here at the station and for airing the show every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And also thanks to everyone at the Village Soundcast Network who take our work and make it sound so sweet and shiny, just like Spando Ballet. Thanks, everyone, (laughs) and we'll see you next week. 
Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 